Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, Audio Boom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. The show's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. Coming up on Space Time. How two ancient supernovae affected life on Earth, solving the mystery of the Martian moons, and the newly discovered planet with three suns. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Two ancient supernovae which erupted within 300 light-years of Earth likely exposed biology on our planet to long-lasting cosmic radiation. The findings, reported in the Astrophysical Journal Letters and on the pre-press physics blog archive.org, are based on new computer simulations of the impact the two exploding stars had on their surrounding space. Sedimentary evidence indicates that one of the two stars exploded between 1.7 and 3.2 million years ago, while the other blew apart somewhere between 6.5 and 8.7 million years ago. One of the study's authors, Professor Adrian Mallott from the University of Kansas, says he was surprised to see how much effect these supernovae had. According to Mallott, cosmic rays generated by these supernovae would have rained down on the Earth for hundreds to thousands of years, increasing normal background cosmic ray levels by a factor of several hundred. The research also suggests that these supernovae may have caused a 20-fold increase in irradiation by muons at ground level on Earth. Muons are subatomic particles several hundred times more massive than electrons which can penetrate hundreds of metres of rock. Malott says a 20-fold increase in muon irradiation levels equates to a tripling of radiation exposure on the ground. He says the uptick in radiation from muons would have been high enough to boost the mutation rate and frequency of cancer. Not enormously, but certainly enough to increase mutation rates, which in turn would have sped up evolutionary changes to life. Indeed, a minor mass extinction around 2.59 million years ago may well be connected in part to boosted cosmic ray levels, which could have also helped cool the Earth's climate. The new research results show that the cosmic rays ionise the Earth's atmosphere in the troposphere, the lowest level of the atmosphere, to a level eight times higher than normal, and that would have caused an increase in cloud-to-ground lightning. Malott says there was climate change around this time, in fact, what is now Africa dried out and a lot of forests turned to savannah. He says that it was around this time and afterwards that Earth started having glaciations, in other words, ice ages, over and over again. And up until now, it's not been clear why that started to happen. However, it may well be that these increased cosmic ray levels had something to do with it. Astronomers may have finally solved the mystery of how the two Martian moons, Phobos and Deimos, were formed. Two separate studies have now both concluded that the moons were likely formed by collision events early in the red planet's history. For a long time, their small size and irregular shape suggested that both moons were actually asteroids that had been captured by Mars after venturing too close. 
The problem is, no one could work out exactly how Mars could have captured Phobos and Deimos and then turned them into satellites with almost circular and equatorial orbits. According to a competing theory, towards the end of its formation, Mars suffered a giant collision with a protoplanet. That's got its own problems. For example, why did the debris from such an impact create two small satellites instead of a single big one, like the Earth's moon? A third possibility is that Phobos and Deimos were formed at the same time as Mars, which would entail that they have the same composition as their host planet. One of the new studies, reported in the Astrophysical Journal, rules out the capture of asteroids and shows that the only scenario compatible with the surface properties of both Phobos and Deimos is that there was a giant collision. In the second study, reported in the journal Nature Geoscience, researchers use new digital simulation techniques to show how these satellites could have formed from the debris of a gigantic collision between Mars and a protoplanet about a third the size of Mars, somewhere between 100 and 800 million years after the beginning of the red planet's formation. As a result, the study offers the first complete and coherent scenario for the formation of Phobos and Deimos. According to researchers, the debris from the collision formed a single very wide disk around Mars, made up of a dense inner part composed of molten matter and a very thin outer part, primarily gas. The inner part of this disk formed a moon 1,000 times the size of Phobos. That moon has since disappeared. The gravitational interactions created by the outer disk of this massive object apparently acted as a catalyst for the gathering of debris from other smaller, more distant moons. After a few thousand years, Mars would have been surrounded by a group of maybe 10 small moons and one enormous one. Now fast forward a few million years, and once the debris disk had dissipated, the tidal effects of Mars brought most of these satellites back down onto the planet's surface, including the very large moon. So the only moons to remain are the two most distant small moons, Phobos and Deimos. Due to the diversity of the physical phenomena involved, no single digital simulation is able to model the entire process. Instead, researchers combine three successive simulations in order to account for the physics behind the giant collision, the dynamics of the debris resulting from that impact, its accretion to form satellites, and the long-term evolution of these satellites. Researchers ruled out the possibility of asteroid capture based on the compositional density of the asteroid belt. They effectively showed that the light signature or spectra emitted by both Phobos and Deimos is incompatible with that of the primordial matter that formed Mars, which therefore supports the collision scenario. From this light signature, they further deduced that satellites are made of fine-grained dust less than a micrometer in size. However, the very small size of these grains on the surface of Phobos and Deimos cannot, according to researchers, be solely explained as a consequence of erosion from bombardment by interplanetary dust. What it means is that the satellites were from the beginning made up of very fine dust grains which can only form by the condensation of the gas in the outer area of the debris disk and not from any of the magma present in the inner part of the disk. Moreover, the formation of the Martian moons from these very fine dust grains could also explain the high internal porosity which would explain the surprisingly low density of both Phobos and Deimos. The theory of the giant collision, which is corroborated by these two independent studies, could also explain why the northern hemisphere of Mars has a much lower average altitude than the southern hemisphere. The Borealis Basin is most probably the remains of a giant collision, such as the one which eventually gave birth to Phobos and Deimos. It also helps explain why Mars has two satellites instead of a single giant one like our moon, which was also created by a giant collision. This research suggests that the satellite systems that were created 
depended on the planet's rotational velocity, because at the time, Earth was rotating very quickly. In fact, a day on Earth lasted less than four hours, whereas at about the same time, Mars was turning six times more slowly. Phobos, the larger of the two Martian moons, is just over 22 kilometres wide and orbits at an average distance of just 9,377 kilometres from Mars, an orbit which decreases in altitude every day. In fact, current estimates indicate Phobos will break apart and crash into Mars within the next 50 million years. Deimos, on the other hand, is the smaller and more distant of the two Martian moons, with a diameter of 12.4 kilometres and an average orbital distance of 23,460 kilometres. If you thought Luke Skywalker's home planet Tatooine was a strange world with its two suns in the sky, imagine a planet where you'd either experience constant daylight or enjoy triple sunrises and sunsets every day. Now, this isn't the opening scene of a future episode of Star Wars, but rather the vista seen from the surface of a distant planet known as HD 131399AB. Triple star systems are fairly common. In fact, our nearest neighbouring star, Alpha Centauri, is a good example. It actually consists of two stars, Alpha Centauri A and Alpha Centauri B, which orbit around each other in a binary system, and which in turn are both orbited by a third star, Proxima Centauri. Now a report in the journal Science shows that this newly discovered exoplanet HD 131399AB has the widest orbit of any known planet in the multiple star system, encompassing all three stars. Located some 340 light-years away in the constellation Centaurus, HD 131399AB is believed to be about 16 million years old, making it one of the youngest exoplanets ever discovered. It's also one of very few directly imaged exoplanets. The exoplanet has an apparent surface temperature of 850 Kelvin, which is about 580 degrees Celsius. It's about four times the mass of Jupiter, the largest planet in our solar system. For about half of this planet's orbit, which lasts 550 Earth years, three stars are visible in the sky, the two fainter always much closer together, and changing in apparent separation from the brighter star throughout the year. For much of this planet's year, all the stars appear close together, giving it a familiar night side and day side, but with a spectacular triple sunrise and triple sunset each day. However, as the planet orbits, the stars grow further apart each day. Eventually, they reach a point where the setting of one star coincides with the rising of the other two, at which point the planet is in constant daytime for about a quarter of its orbit, roughly 140 Earth years. This planet also marks the first discovery of an exoplanet made with SPHERE, one of the world's most advanced instruments dedicated to finding planets around other stars. SPHERE, which stands for the Spectro-Polarometric High Contrast Exoplanet Research Instrument, is sensitive to infrared light, making it capable of detecting heat signatures from young planets. The instrument is part of the European Southern Observatory's Very Large Telescope in the Atacama Desert of northern Chile. At the moment, astronomers think the star at the centre of the system, HD 131399A, is about 80% more massive than our Sun. This central star is orbited by the two companion stars, HD 131399b and HD 131399c, at about 300 times further out than Earth's orbit around the Sun. At the same time, stars B and C twirl around each other, like a spinning dumbbell, separated by a distance roughly equal to the distance between our Sun and Saturn. In this scenario, planet HD 131399AB travels around the central star, star A, in an orbit about twice as large as Pluto's orbit around the Sun, 
and it brings the planet to about one-third of the separation between the stars themselves. Computer simulations show that this type of orbit can be stable, but if you change things around just a little bit, it becomes very unstable very quickly. For example, if this planet were any further away from the most massive star in the system, it would be gravitationally flung out of the system very quickly. Planets in multi-star systems are of special interest to astronomers. That's because they provide an example of how planetary formation can occur in extreme scenarios. While multi-star systems seem exotic to us in our orbit around our solitary star, they're actually more common than single-star systems. A SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket has blasted into orbit from Launch Complex 40 at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Base, lighting up the early morning skies of the Florida Atlantic coast. Minus 10, 9, nine 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Main engines up and running and lift off of the Falcon 9 to the space station, preparing for the arrival of commercial crews continuing experiments for long-term living in space. Falcon 9 having cleared the tower. Communications from telemetry data. We have a good flight going. Vehicle going through Max-Q. Maximum dynamic pressure. Vehicle's transonic. The Falcon 9 is carrying a Dragon cargo ship loaded with two tons of fresh supplies, scientific experiments and space station equipment bound for the International Space Station. Included in the cargo, which is supporting some 250 currently ongoing station experiments, is a new half-ton space station docking port known as the International Docking Adapter, or ADI. The new docking port is designed to provide a standardised connection point to the space station for visiting manned spacecraft, including both Boeing's new CST-100 Starliner and the SpaceX Dragon V-2, both now in development in partnership with NASA's commercial crew program. Equipped with numerous sensors and instruments, the new docking adapter is designed to work with automated guidance systems on arriving spacecraft, allowing them to dock to the station with little if any help from station crew. The space station's robotic arm will retrieve the IDA from the unpressurized trunk on the Dragon spacecraft and spacewalkers will complete the installation of the adapter during an EVA or extravehicular activity slated for August. The rest of the cargo, including research payloads, are riding inside the Dragon's pressurized compartment. Among the scientific payloads is a project developed by Colorado high school students to study how nanoscale structures grow in space. It's one of the great advantages of having a government that has a space program. The experiment will see how silver crystals form wires as small as one atom wide. It seems crystals can form larger structures in microgravity because they don't collapse under their own weight. The automated experiment will be left running for about four weeks before returning to Earth on the return of the same Dragon spacecraft. Dragon also carried Tango Lab 1, which is a sophisticated rack equipped with the infrastructure researchers need to conduct experiments inside the space station. Tango Lab 1 will be plugged into the station's network for data transfer and is reconfigurable for different types of experiments. Another experiment, called the Advanced Colloids Experiment Temperature Control 1, or ACES-T1, will examine how molecules form themselves into shapes and formats free from gravity. After five weeks in orbit, the Dragon will detach itself and steer back through Earth's atmosphere, unfurling a parachute and then splashing down in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of California. 
And time now to turn our eyes to the skies. Jonathan Nally is the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. And he joins us now to check out the night skies of July on Skywatch. Well, July is a really good time of year to see lots of good things up in the night sky. A bit cold, of course, for us down here in the Southern Hemisphere. It's our winter, but, um, you know, you've got to brave the cold sometimes if you want to see some good stuff up in the night sky. And look, the Southern Cross, which is the constellation everyone wants to see, if you, if you don't already know where to find it, that's the one they always ask, where can I see the Southern Cross? Well, it's really nice and high in the south at the moment, if you can work out where south is. Once you know where south is, you can find the Southern Cross. It's nice and high, probably about halfway up the sky or a little bit more. And the cross looks like a kite shape. It's not a cross in terms of a plus symbol on a keyboard. It's more like a kite. It's elongated in one direction. And there are a couple of stars near it called the two pointers. They're really bright stars, Alpha and Beta Centauri, and they sort of point towards where the Southern Cross is. So if you can find south, you should be able to find the Southern Cross. Now, directly overhead in the sky at this time of year is the magnificent constellation Scorpius. Some people call it Scorpio. Fantastic, enormous constellation. It's one of the very few, including the Southern Cross, that actually looks like what it's supposed to. So the cross looks like a cross. Scorpius does really look like a scorpion with its body and its curved tail with a sting on the end. Just next to Scorpius is the constellation Sagittarius. Now when you're looking in this direction in the sky, you're looking in towards the centre of our galaxy, the Milky Way. So when you get outside and have a look and you're looking, you find this area of the sky, have a look, just think you're inside this big galaxy called the Milky Way and when you're looking in that direction, you're looking thousands and thousands and thousands of light years towards the centre of the Milky Way. Now in Scorpius, uh, its brightest star is called Antares, a name which is commonly taken to mean the rival of Mars. And you can see for yourself quite easily what this means because right at the moment, Mars is nearby to Antares and Scorpius. And also nearby is another planet, Saturn. Saturn looks, you know, um, white with a tiny little hint of yellow. Mars is a sort of ruddish, ruddy reddish colour and so is the star Antares. So all three of them are pretty easy to spot as they're the three brightest objects directly overhead in the sort of mid-evening sky at this time of year. The other planet that's visible at the moment is Jupiter, and Jupiter's visible out towards the western horizon after the sun goes down. You can't miss it. It's the brightest object in the western part of the sky. Now, if if you're still having trouble finding it, even though it's the brightest thing out there, wait until August the 6th, because the moon will be right next to Jupiter in the evening sky, and then you you won't be able to miss it. In fact, I'll be getting phone calls all day long saying, what's that thing next to the moon? And of course, it's just the planet Jupiter. And just finally, on what's in the night sky, uh, there's a meteor shower on at the moment. It's called the sun. Southern Delta Aquarids, so named because these meteors appear to come from a part of the sky near a star called Delta Aquarii. The best time to spot these meteors, and any other meteors for that matter, is in the hours between midnight and dawn. Okay, so you've got to be either a very late night owl or an early riser. For this particular shower, if you're up and about in the wee small hours, look out to the west, about halfway up the sky. If you're in a dark spot in the country or, or, you know, a long way away from city lights, then you might see around about 10 meteors per hour from a dark location during the, the maximum time of the shower, which is at the end of July, July 30th to be precise. If you're viewing from the uh, the city, the suburbs, where there's a lot of light around and it drowns out the fainter meteors, you might see three or five meteors per hour. So is it worth getting up in the, you know, three o'clock in the morning to go out and see three or five meteors per hour? Well, you know, it's up to you. But if you're up and about, if you're a night owl or you're on shift work or something like that, um, have a look. You know, meteors are fantastic things to see, particularly if you're out in a nice dark spot. And of course, one of the big problems we have with light pollution right now, which is sort of what you were alluding to, is that as we look in the skies, especially from cities, we're seeing less and less of the stars that are up there. The view you get from a major city is so totally devoid of stars compared to what you'd see, say, from the outback. Oh, 
it's just awful, really. I mean, uh, we've got millions of kids growing up in the cities, and so many of them never get to go on holidays uh, out in the bush or just even just, you know, over the mountain somewhere, just away from the city, you know, where it's dark. And all they know is the few stars they can see up in the night sky, and you, you can't really make out too much in terms of the constellation patterns and things, and there are trees and buildings and things in the way. So we're really disconnected from the night sky uh, when you live in the city. And by that, we mean we're disconnected from the universe, really. I mean, you think back thousands of years ago, people didn't know what stars were. They didn't understand the universe. They didn't understand the solar system, all that sort of thing. You know, from way back in the old days when people thought the stars were holes in the sky or they were gods or whatever. But we formed this amazing understanding of where we are in the cosmos and what the cosmos is and all these fabulous things that are out there in space. But yet most of us live in these rotten big cities with all this light pollution and all sorts of other pollution. And, and it just drowns out our view of the night sky and, and you just can't see a thing really compared to being out somewhere dark in the outback or the bush anyone who's been out there the first thing they tell you when they say oh i was out you know out bush was the night sky was just fantastic you could see stars everywhere stars all the way down to the horizon there were millions and millions and millions of stars it's amazing i've never never seen anything like it that's what we're missing in the city and of course talking about uh, the southern cross that's a perfect example of all that we don't really see it as a cross anymore what we see are maybe three of the stars that's it that's true yeah because the the stars come in different brightnesses of course and um, in you know, faint ones and, and, and bright ones and there are fewer bright ones and more fainter ones just the way it works that's all called magnitude, isn't it? Yeah, astronomers measure uh, brightness of stars and they call it a magnitude. So you have a, a first magnitude star is a really bright one. Uh, a fifth magnitude star is a faint one. So, yeah, what you say is right, that if you're in a, a light-polluted area, then the what this light pollution is actually doing is making the sky glow. It's just this, just this grey, grey murk overhead, you know, just the awful grey murk, whereas the night sky, the spaces in between the stars and the night sky should be pitch black but it's not it's got this awful murky rubbish that's caused by the light just going up from the ground instead of down onto the ground it's you know some lights are not designed very well some of the light they shine is goes down to the ground where it's meant to be others just other light just goes straight up because the light fitting is not made very well and, and it, it allows light to go up other light is just reflected off the ground up into the up into the sky and it makes the actual air molecules glow so the sky is actually glowing very faintly um, but also of course you've got all the pollution in the in the air and and that's glowing as well so it, it just ruins our view so what so yeah the upshot of it all is that um, with this with the sky glowing faintly the faintest stars get drowned out they sort of disappear into the fog of this glowing sky so what you say is right instead of seeing four or five stars in the cross you might see three or four which is really quite tragic you know I remember remember that that fantastic television show Cosmos with Carl Sagan of course yes absolutely brilliant it was the first big space uh, documentary a bit like uh, the David Attenborough of, of the space world and that came out at the beginning of the 1980s and I remember the producers in that show uh, saying how um, when when that was shown around the world they would get uh, letters from kids who lived in these big light polluted cities who said oh we didn't know stars were real we thought they were made up for science fiction because we've never seen stars there was a huge outcry and calls to emergency services in the United States when New York City blacked out because all of a sudden the city was dark and if you looked up you could see these things glowing in the night sky stars <laughs> 
Isn't that tragic? Isn't it tragic? Very sad. And I mean, <clears throat> I mean, uh, you and I, we're, we're space nuts. We love the view, and so do thousands of other people and many, many listeners. But um, it, it's not necessarily the most important thing in the world. But what it is is it's indicative of the way we're polluting our environment. This is one way we're polluting our environment. There are plenty of other ways we're doing it, of course. And it's just ruining our our enjoyment of nature. It's like you know, chopping down forests or you know polluting rivers. In America now, they've actually got special dark sky reserves where the lights have got to be designed so that they don't take away the uh, the stars at night. That's right. There are a number of those places around around the globe, and and that's really really good. Um, the the rule of thumb though with this sort of thing with light pollution is that by the time you realise there's a problem, it's too late. It's probably too late. Well, exactly. e- even here in Australia with the uh, the Siding Spring Observatory, it's located way out west from Sydney to a place called Coonabarabran, as, as well you know. But uh, mm. even there, when they point their big telescopes towards the east, towards Sydney, there's parts of the sky they can't see because of the air glow from Sydney. Yeah, they avoid that part of the sky because yeah. from hundreds and hundreds of kilometres away, the sky glow of this city of four and a half million people is ruining it for them. Uh, even Newcastle can be uh, detected from, from that distance away. So... Yeah, it's it's a bit of a problem, and it's also why it's, it's not just for. Um, well, it's certainly affecting people like you and I, and many listeners who like to go out and see the night sky. But even uh, radio astronomers, of course, uh, have to get have to find places where it's quiet in a radio sense, where there's uh, as little interference as possible from cell phones, of... microwave ovens, things like that. All that sort of stuff, yeah. or TV stations, you, you name it. Which is why uh, this enormous um, square kilometre array project, which is being sort of jointly built in Australia and in Southern Africa, is being put out in the middle of nowhere. Apologies to people who are out there, but it's the middle of nowhere. And that's deliberate because um, not only is the weather good and everything, but mainly it's because it's a radio quiet area. It's the equivalent of being out in the outback and being able to look up and see millions of stars. In fact, just while you're talking about the SKA, news has just come out that uh, Meerkat, which is the South African pathfinder for the SKA, that's just had its first light. So they're starting to see stars there now, which is really cool. Well, let's let's hope that those regions where they're building these uh, amazing uh, instruments will remain radio quiet and and undisturbed uh, for as long as possible so that these incredibly sensitive instruments don't get swamped by more man-made pollution of a different kind. Yeah, in the United States, they've actually legislated to maintain radio quiet areas, especially for things like the Green Bank Observatory, the big 100-metre dish or something in uh, West Virginia. That's right, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, a similar sort of thing years and years and years ago um, at Siding Spring Observatory near Coonabarabin in New South Wales, they were able to get the um, local jurisdiction to put in ordinances to say any new properties that are developed and things must use particular kind of lighting to try and preserve our night sky for us. I'm not sure whether that's still in force or not, but certainly it was very successful for quite a while. That's Jonathan Nally, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, Audio Boom and from Spacetime with StuartGarry.com. For more, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Just search for Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This show is also broadcast coast to coast across the United States on Science 360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, or Audio Boom. 
This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. This month, exploring NASA's Juno mission to the King of Planets. 